All right, good afternoon. I want to welcome everybody to the 40th, um, I, I think it's the 40th annual, but the 40th David um, B. Kaner Memorial Lecture. So um, I always forget to do this. I'm going to start with the COI statement because I get in trouble if I don't do it. Um, our speaker does not have any financial interests. She does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational uses of a product or device, and she is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. So um, we are here um, at the 40th annual um, David B. Kaner uh, Memorial Lecture. Uh, I'd like to first um, welcome and introduce um, Mrs. Marjorie Long, who is David Kaner's widow. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. She has been a longtime supporter of this lecture and um, keeping her late husband's legacy alive. I know she comes to this lecture almost every time we have it and um, loves to spend time with our visitor and sharing stories about David. So Marjorie, thank you and welcome. So I, I think many of you know the story, but I um, would like to, um, to tell you a little bit about David. He um, was a um, intern, a surgical intern here at Mary Hitchcock Memorial Hospital and um, had um, been diagnosed with chronic myelogenous leukemia during that time and fought it valiantly. During that time, he worked continuously and was actually accepted into an ophthalmology um, residency program, but unfortunately um, died um, after an all too short remission after a lot of treatment and wasn't able to actually start that training. So um, he was 30 when he died and I think by all accounts lived a relative, a very short life, but lived it to its fullest. Um, he's remembered for his gentle manner, his concern for others and commitment to his profession. And after he died, Dartmouth Medical School um, established this memorial lectureship in tribute to his memory. So this year, we are so honored to welcome Dr. Monica Morrow as the David Kaner Lecturer. So um, Dr. Morrow is currently the chief of the breast surgery service at Memorial, um, where she is also the Anne Burnett Winford Chair of Clinical Oncology. Um, just learned and remembered that she's been at Memorial for 10 years now and um, kind of leading up to that, um, did a five-year combined um, bachelor's and um, MD program at Penn State. Um, and um, I'm sorry, I've forgotten. And Jefferson. So it was a, a, a great program. And then she actually did her residency training program at the University of Vermont. So familiar with northern New England in that regard. And then went on to do a surgical oncology fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Um, she's kind of done a lot of different things. It's been at a lot of different places, including SUNY Downstate, the University of Chicago, Northwestern University, Fox Chase, and then finally kind of full circle back to Memorial. Um, I could go through all of the kind of things that she's done in her um, career. Her CV weighs a ton. Um, she's published over 550 papers and chapters, um, has given so many talks, is currently one of the associate editors at JAMA Oncology, um, is a previous president of the SSO and current president of the SSO Foundation. That just skims the entire top of it. And um, Dr. Morrow, I apologize that we could spend the entire hour going through everything that you've done. I think importantly though, and I think many of you in this room know this, I think she has had a profound influence on how we treat breast cancer and has devoted her career to kind of really thinking about how we um, can do better in terms of local management of breast cancer. 
She really is a master at translating results from clinical trials into how we treat patients. Um, I think in, in doing that, though, it really is about thinking about how we make better decisions around surgical care, how um, we can decrease the morbidity of surgery and still take excellent care of patients and still contribute to excellent results. And she's recently has been a real thought leader in how we use MRI. And I think that a lot of the things that she'll talk about in today's talk, multimodality therapy, will highlight some of those findings. Um, I do want to just mention, I've known Dr. Morrow for a long time, and she really is an outstanding teacher and mentor. I think she has um, touched the lives of so many people in training programs. Uh, she's the consummate thought leader in breast cancer. And um, so instead of listening to me blather on, I'd like to introduce Dr. Morrow as this year's lecturer. Thank you very much, Dr. Wong. Um, I have known Sandra since she was a medical student. I was not, which she politely didn't say when we encountered each other. So it is a great pleasure to uh, come to Dartmouth, where she's now the chair of surgery. I have always thought that named lectureships are one of the nicest honors that we have in academic surgery. So it's a particular privilege for me to give this lecture, having had the opportunity to learn something about David Kaner and his extraordinary life. So thank you. So what I'm going to do today is talk about how my thoughts about breast cancer have perhaps changed over time and how I think we need to move from delivering serial episodic care to a different definition of what actually constitutes multimodality care. So why should we be thinking about change? After all, the ability of surgery to cure breast cancer has not changed over time. And in fact, the cancers that we see in this era of screening and greater breast cancer awareness are more amenable to surgical cure than those in the past, being smaller and having a lower nodal disease burden. And we now give systemic therapy to most patients with invasive breast cancer. And I think if we don't stop and think for a minute about the changes in breast cancer, even during my own practice lifetime, we sometimes forget how far we've come. So if you go back to the 1970s and look at the NSABP B04 study, which was the first trial to ask a question about managing the axillary nodes in the modern era, the mean tumor size of patients randomized into that study was 3.3 centimeters. About 30 years later, when we were again asking the same question about the axillary nodes in ACOSOG Z11, the mean tumor size of patients enrolled in that study was half that, 1.6 centimeters. If we look at NSABP B06, the proof of principle trial for lumpectomy and radiotherapy compared to mastectomy, only a quarter of patients randomized into that trial had clinical stage one breast cancer. And again, in the more modern era, when we look at B32, which was the proof of principle study for sentinel node biopsy, that now increased to 80%. So the face of breast cancer has changed considerably over time. And if we look at what does breast cancer look like today, these are 11,500 consecutive patients that we treated at Memorial between 1998 and 2010, broken down by hormone receptor and HER2 status, since really it's impossible to think of breast cancer today as a single disease. And notice that regardless of tumor subtype, the mean tumor size was 1.6, 1.7 centimeters, that anywhere between a quarter and a third of patients had nodal metastases, 
But of those who have nodal metastases, very few, as shown on the bottom line, have metastases in four or more positive nodes. So disease burden is different. As I alluded to before, we also now recognize that breast cancer is not a single disease, but a series of genetically distinct entities. And our colleagues in medical oncology really recognized this long ago, and we no longer see trials in breast cancer. We see trials in HER2 overexpressing breast cancer, in estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. But it turns out that there are the same important differentiations in local regional outcomes as there are in systemic outcomes. So these data come from the International Breast Cancer Study Group, looking at the smallest breast cancers, those a centimeter or less in size, and comparing local regional recurrence outcomes. So notice that on the bottom of this graph, the luminal cancers, that is the ER-positive HER2-negative, have the lowest risk of local recurrence. The triple-negative cancers, shown in the green line, the highest risk of local regional recurrence. So outcome differs in this way. And then, in addition, we need to think about what has happened about adjuvant systemic therapy over time. We started out treating only node-positive patients. Then we recognized that node-negative women with larger tumors were also at substantial risk for distant failure and treated them. And now we know that in the higher-risk subtypes, triple-negative and HER2 overexpressing, that we often or usually give systemic therapy for cancers as small as five millimeters with negative nodes. The drugs we have have become increasingly more effective over time as we've moved from CMF to anthracyclines to the combination of anthracyclines plus taxanes, and particularly towards HER2 blockade. And even endocrine therapy, which for many, many years was stuck at five years, we now recognize that there are populations of ER-positive women who benefit from treatment for longer durations. So I think one of the things that those of us who do local therapy failed to pay attention to for a long time was the profound effect of systemic therapy on local regional recurrence. So if you look in the Oxford overview analysis, comparing women who receive five years of tamoxifen to those who get placebo, the risk of local regional recurrence is basically halved simply by giving five years of tamoxifen independent of what you do with the surgical aspects or the radiation part of treatment. As you get better endocrine therapy, as exemplified by the aromatase inhibitor anastrozole, you get a further 20% reduction in local regional recurrence. And as we move to more extended durations of endocrine therapy or switching strategies where you go from tamoxifen to an aromatase inhibitor, you see that on top of this 50% benefit that you've already gotten, you're now seeing a further 50% relative risk reduction. And this benefit is not confined to endocrine therapy. We see the same thing for chemotherapy versus none. And if you add in HER2 blockade on top of your chemotherapy backbone, you see another decrease in outcome. So the net effect of all this is that over time, local regional recurrence has become increasingly less frequent. So shown here are 86,000 women who were enrolled in phase three drug trials between 1995 and 2010. The Green line is endocrine therapy, the blue line is chemotherapy, and what you see is that during that time period, local regional recurrence as a proportion of all recurrences fell from 30% to 15%. 
Great news for patients, something that makes it more difficult to study local regional recurrence because it's increasingly less common. So what we need to do is move from a model where traditionally surgeons, when they think about local control, think about disease burden, disease burden, disease burden. And this has given rise to almost everything we have done in breast cancer surgery over the years. Bigger is better. Disease burden is big. Cut it out bigger. Give more radiation. But in today's world, when we think about local control, I think what we need to consider is the intersection between disease burden, the fundamental biology of the cancer, and the quality of the other therapies we bring to bear to ask the question, how do we leverage this understanding to trying to decrease the morbidity of treatment? Because the classic American paradigm of treatment is add, 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 as we drive to cure. And that's a great paradigm, except if you always add, you also add and add more and more toxicity, sometimes for less and less benefit. So mostly what I've told you so far is good news. Treatment is better, cancers are smaller. At the same time, we see this paradoxical shift in what's going on in surgery in this country. So shown on this graph is the National Cancer Database of the American College of Surgeons, about 1.8 million women with early-stage breast cancers, and what kind of surgery they've undergone between the mid-1990s and 2011. And what you see as illustrated in this top curve is that up until about 2005, rates of breast conservation rose, and then they plateaued and started to drop, accompanied by an increase in bilateral mastectomy and a decrease in unilateral mastectomy. So we have come to a time when we see a very interesting polarization of breast surgery. You can have one woman with the same early stage breast cancer who opts to have breast conservation, as illustrated in this picture, which is a brief outpatient surgery where you get an axillary dissection only if you have cancer in three or more sentinel nodes, but radiotherapy is routine afterwards. Or you can have a woman with the same cancer in one breast who opts for what's illustrated here, which is a bilateral deep flap after a bilateral mastectomy, which is a much, much longer operation, which requires four to five days in the hospital, gets you an axillary dissection if you have cancer in any lymph nodes, and radiotherapy is increasingly more frequent. So... One of the areas that's been of interest to me for a long time is how women make decisions about surgery. And for a long time, high rates of mastectomy in the United States were basically attributed to surgeons. It was thought that surgeons were pushing women into doing this. So this is a population-based study that we did a number of years ago now using women from the Los Angeles and Detroit SEER registries who were identified by rapid case ascertainment so that we could survey them within six months of their breast cancer diagnosis about the decision-making process and what was important to them. And what I'm showing you in this slide is the rate of mastectomy based on who the patient identified as the primary decision maker about surgery after adjustment for multiple patient and tumor-related variables. So if the patient said, my surgeon is the one who picked what operation I should have, the mastectomy rate was 5%. 
If they said the decision was a shared decision, it popped up to about 17%. And if the patient said, I chose what surgery to have, the mastectomy rate went to 27%, a difference that was highly significant. Now, there are many reasons women might opt to have a mastectomy instead of a lumpectomy and radiotherapy, in spite of the fact that there is an overwhelming body of evidence that says that survival between those two operations is the same. And one of the things we were interested in was looking at second surgeries after initial attempts at lumpectomy, because nobody wants to go back to the operating room. So this is a population-based sample of 800 women who were treated in calendar years 2005 and 6. And you can see that we're quite good at picking who can actually have a lumpectomy. Of 800 women who started out attempting breast conservation, it was successful in 88% of them. But notice that 22% had a re-excision, 12% ended up being converted to mastectomy, so that about a third of the patient population actually underwent more than one operation. And about half of those re-excisions are done for women who have negative margins, defined as no ink on tumor, apparently in the belief that a bigger margin is a better margin, reduces local recurrence. So in order to address that question in the context of modern breast cancer therapy, a few years ago, the Society of Surgical Oncology and ASTRO, the Radiation Oncology Organization, decided to get together and do an evidence-based consensus conference on margins in invasive breast cancer for breast-conserving surgery with radiotherapy. And the reason we decided to do that was, as I have just told you, our understanding of what determines local control has changed. We like to think of pathologists and the measurement of margin width as a very exact science, and that's why people have rabid arguments about one millimeter is bad and two millimeters is good, when in fact, if you've ever watched them gross in in the path lab, the idea that you can reproducibly measure one millimeter differences is questionable, to put it politely. Um, most patients receive systemic therapy, which as I've showed you, impacts local control, and we have accepted non-surgical management of microscopic disease in the axilla. So in order to do this consensus, we did a meta-analysis, which involved retrospective studies that included 28,000 patients, because there are no prospective studies of margin width, and 1,500 local recurrences, and included patients who received whole breast irradiation and had a minimum follow-up of four years. And the first thing to notice is that the crude rate of local recurrence was only 5%, even though most of these studies come from the 1990s. So we spend a lot of time worrying about something that is a relatively infrequent event. And what we found in that study, using two different statistical tests, when we asked the question, is there a specific margin threshold which improves local recurrence, was that the answer was no. There was no difference in the one, two, or five millimeter margin thresholds. So what we concluded was that evidence that margins more widely clear than no ink on tumor as a routine decreases local recurrence was lacking, and that arbitrary rules in your tumor board that all patients needed to have a margin of one millimeter one centimeter, whatever your favorite number is, were not supported by evidence. 
So we presented this work in the fall of 2013. It was published electronically in February of 2014 and was printed in three different journals targeting three different oncologic specialties in March and May of 2014. So we were curious to know whether or not this actually did any good because we had invested a fair amount of time in doing this. So in collaboration with Stephen Katz at the University of Michigan, we performed a study to evaluate time trends in the use of additional surgery after lumpectomy before and after guideline dissemination and to look at whether or not there was a change in overall rates of breast conserving surgery. So in order to do this study, we took a population of women aged 20 to 79 who had stage one and two breast cancer diagnosed between April of 2013, which was pre-guideline, and April of 2015, which was about a year after the guidelines came out, who were identified through the Los Angeles and Georgia SEER registries. You can see we started with 7,800 potentially eligible patients. We surveyed 7,300 of them. We got a 70% response rate to our survey. We cleaned out some patients who had pure DCIS, bilateral breast cancer, or were missing data, which left us with an analytic sample of about 3,700 patients. And these were fairly typical breast cancer patients. 62% of them were between the ages of 40 and 60. We oversampled black and Latina women in this study, so 54% were Caucasian. And if we look at their breast cancers, uh, about 75% were T1 tumors, 80% were node negative, and that box is not in the right place, 71% of them had grade two or three breast cancer. So if we look at how they were treated, the initial lumpectomy rate was 68% and did not change across the time frame of the study. So the same number of women attempted lumpectomy throughout. The final surgery was lumpectomy in 63% overall, and again, you see fairly evenly divided between unilateral and bilateral mastectomy. So this graph illustrates what happened over time. So shown on the x-axis is time beginning in 2013 up through 2015. <coughs> the months highlighted in pink are the time periods of guideline dissemination. So this is final surgical treatment. The big blue bar is breast conserving surgery. You can see that it increased over time. The orange bar is unilateral mastectomy decreased, as did bilateral mastectomy. And if you look at that numerically, <coughs> you can see that the differences are actually fairly dramatic. In that two-year time period, the rate of breast conserving surgery increased from 52% to 65%, with a corresponding drop in mastectomy rates from 27% to 18% for unilateral and 21% to 16% for bilateral. And if we look at what happened to second surgeries, this slide is set up the same way. Months of guideline dissemination, the blue is re-excision, the green is conversion to mastectomy, and we see again a big drop-off in both of those things. And numerically, notice particularly that 
of women who started out attempting lumpectomy and got converted to mastectomy, that number dropped from 13% to 4% over that time period. So we were interested to know, because obviously this is an observational study and we couldn't absolutely prove causality. So we decided that we wished to survey the surgeons who treated these women who had these surgeries. So we asked our 3,700 patients to identify their treating surgeon. 98% of them responded, which gave us 488 surgeons. We surveyed those people, and we had a 77% response rate. Being surgeons, some of them didn't actually answer the question that they were asked. So when we eliminated those people, that left us with 342 surgeons in our sample. So we asked these 342 surgeons, if you have a 60-year-old with an 8-millimeter cancer who's planning lumpectomy and sentinel node biopsy with whole breast irradiation, what negative margin width precludes the need for re-excision? And we offered the options of tumor not touching the ink, 1 to 2 millimeters, 5 millimeters, or a centimeter. And what we found was that 70% of surgeons endorsed tumor not touching the ink for an ER-positive cancer, and 63% for an ER-negative cancer. And when we looked at who those surgeons were, and shown on the panel closest to me is the ER-positive case. This is the ER-negative case. And what you're looking at in these bars is volume of breast cancer treated on an annual basis. So these are the low-volume surgeons, 1 to 20 cases, the high-volume surgeons greater than 60 cases, and what you can see is that only 55% of the low-volume surgeons accepted no ink on tumor compared to 86% of the high-volume surgeons. Now, when we look at the question, are these surgeons' attitudes different, if we look at surveys of surgeons that were done prior to the era of the guideline, including the FAR survey, ASU et al., which is a study that we did using precisely the same methodology used in our current study, just in an earlier time frame, you see that fewer than 20% of surgeons bought the no ink on tumor guideline, or the no ink on tumor margin definition prior to the guideline. Post-guideline, that number was 69% in our study, and in a survey of members of the American Society of Breast Surgeons, went up to 99%. So what we concluded from this is that in a relatively short time period, after the publication of and presentation of this guideline, we observed a 16% decrease in additional surgery after initial lumpectomy and a 13% increase in the rate of final breast-conserving surgery. Now, how do we know these changes are due to guideline adoption? Well, the rate of initial lumpectomy, as I told you, did not change. The rate of positive margins, which mandate re-excision, didn't change over the study period. And we controlled for clinical variables in our analyses. Surgeon attitudes parallel what we saw in clinical practice. But to me, the most convincing thing was we had a sample of 673 women with DCIS treated in the same time period to whom the guideline does not apply, and we saw absolutely no change in the rate of post-lumpectomy surgery in those patients with DCIS. So this would suggest that 
in areas of clinical controversy that sometimes guidelines actually can work. And as an example of using the differences in modern treatment and outcomes today to do less surgery. But I think the area where we really have changed practice the most is in management of the axilla. Traditionally, we did axillary dissection to find out if patients were node positive or node negative. We did it to maintain local control in the axilla, and we did it because we hoped it provided a survival benefit, even though multiple studies kept telling us it didn't. Once seminal node biopsy was developed, there was no longer any need to do axillary dissection for staging purposes. So that left us with doing axillary dissection in node-positive women for local control and maybe survival. So what was the impetus for change here? Again, cancers are smaller with a lower nodal disease burden. In today's world, the number of involved lymph nodes rarely determines the type of systemic therapy used. And we know that the radiotherapy and systemic therapy that are part of breast conservation in node-positive women contribute to local control. And this was, of course, the impetus for the ACASOG-Z11 trial, which asked the question, can we decrease the extent of axillary surgery in node-positive women? So I think everybody knows this trial. Clinically node-negative women, based on physical exam, who were undergoing breast-conserving therapy and found to have a positive sentinel node were randomized to completion axillary dissection or no further axillary surgery with the expectation that they would receive radiotherapy to the breast and adjuvant systemic therapy postoperatively. So this study was first published at a median follow-up of 6.3 years. It showed no difference in nodal recurrences, which were less than 1% in both arms. It showed no difference in disease-free survival and it showed non-inferiority of overall survival between the two arms. This was a landmark practice-changing study. It was also a study that was universally hated by everyone except for those of us who did it. And the most common complaints, I could spend the rest of this lecture outlining what everybody hated about this trial, but to summarize the most common complaints about it was, number one, the patient population was highly selected. The results do not apply to Mrs. Jones, who is sitting in my office practice. This was a population of postmenopausal hormone receptor positive women. We can't apply these results to premenopausal, ER negative, or HER2 overexpressing women, which they didn't even measure when this study was going on. The follow-up is too short. We know that systemic failure in ER positive women occurs at a constant rate out through 10 years and beyond, and that actually is a valid criticism. And the low rates of nodal recurrence were due to the lack of protocol-specified radiation fields and the fact that the radiation oncologists were treating the axilla. So happily, it's been a long time since this study was first published, and last year, the 10-year follow-up results came out. And so if you focus your attention up here, which is nodal recurrence rates at a median follow-up of 9.25 years, you can see that there's still no difference between groups. A single patient had a nodal recurrence in the sentinel node-only arm 
between the first and the second publication, making the point that nodal failure, even in ER-positive women, tends to be an early event. And there is still no difference in disease-free or overall survival. So how many patients can actually be spared axillary dissection if you apply the Z11 criteria in your clinical practice? And if you look at retrospective studies published from around the world, it's very confusing because apparently only 9% of women in Switzerland are spared axillary dissection, but in the U.S. or France, that number goes up to 70 or 75%. And that's because people used different denominators here. They counted the total number of nodes with metastases instead of just the number of sentinel nodes and things like that. So after the study was first presented in August of 2010, our group at Memorial decided to adopt this as standard practice and initiated a prospective study to determine how often axillary dissection was avoided if you looked at a patient population selected only with the Z11 eligibility criteria, and then to look at the incidence of local regional recurrence in a population with known radiotherapy fields. So the eligibility criteria were very simple. They were, again, clinical T1 and T2, node-negative breast cancers, undergoing breast-conserving surgery with a plan to receive whole breast irradiation who had H&E detected metastases. This was not a study of IHC-only micromets. Patients were ineligible if they got neoadjuvant chemotherapy, they required conversion to mastectomy, or they were not receiving whole breast irradiation. We did not routinely image the axilla. <clears throat> they were determined to be node negative by clinical exam, and we abandoned the use of intraoperative frozen section. We told patients preoperatively, if you have metastases in three or more nodes, you will be returned to the operating room for a second operation to dissect your axilla. One of the few things we've ever done that has made our pathology department happy. And we pre-specified that you would have an axillary dissection if you had metastases in three or more sentinel nodes or you were found intraoperatively to have matted lymph nodes. We did not use the nomogram developed by my colleague Kim Van Zee to predict the likelihood of additional positive nodes in the axilla. If you accept Z11, you accept the fact that you are leaving behind disease in the axilla of a proportion of women which you expect to be treated with radiotherapy or systemic therapy. So when we reported this study, we had 793 consecutive node-positive patients with a median age of 58 years and a median tumor size of 1.7 centimeters. As you would expect, the vast majority of them had infiltrating ductal cancer. Notice that 94% of them had grade 2 or 3 disease, so these were not selected to be low-risk women. And 84% of them were hormone receptor positive using the definition of any staining for ER and HER2 negative. And as one would anticipate in a population of node-positive women, 98% of them received systemic therapy, which was the combined chemoendocrine therapy in 65%, endocrine therapy alone in about a quarter, and chemotherapy alone in 9%. And 93% of them had completed radiotherapy at the time 
that we did this analysis, 45 patients refused radiotherapy. So if we look at the first outcome, that is how often do you need to do axillary dissection? Of these 793 patients, we were able to treat 84% of them with sentinel node biopsy alone, a dramatic change in our practice in terms of the morbidity of treatment. And if we tried to predict, based on things you know preoperatively, who was going to need an axillary dissection, notice that the tumors in the axillary dissection group were a little bit bigger, but at a median size of 2.2 centimeters, they were still small. The classic things that we think of, age, histologic type, grade, lymphovascular invasion, receptor status, did not predict the need for axillary dissection. What did predict the need for axillary dissection was the presence of microscopic extracapsular extension greater than two millimeters in the sentinel nodes, something that has not been addressed in any of the prospective trials. So when we looked specifically at the high-risk subset of women, which we defined as those less than 50 who were either hormone receptor positive or who had triple negative breast cancer, there were 288 patients who had one or more of those features. Their axillary dissection rate was 16%. And in the women who had ER-positive tumors and were age 50 and older, the axillary dissection rate was 17%. So high-risk features for distant metastases do not a priori identify a group of women who are likely to require an axillary dissection. So if we look at the outcomes of these women, to do this, we excluded patients who did not receive radiotherapy. And we looked only at those with follow-up of at least a year, which left us with 484 patients. Of those patients, 58% received standard supine tangent radiotherapy. 21% of them were treated prone, which basically means their axilla got no radiation. And in 21%, the radiation oncologists were unable to stop themselves from radiating the nodal fields. And so if you look at those three groups, not surprisingly, the patients differ from each other. The median number of positive sentinel nodes in all groups was one, but in the group that got node field irradiation was slanted towards two. LVI was more frequent in the node field group, but notice that in patients who were treated prone or supine, about half of those patients had lymphovascular invasion. They were not a low-risk group. And microscopic extracapsular extension was also present in a significant number of women who were treated without radiation to the node fields. And if you look at the outcome in terms of nodal first failure, there was a 1% rate of nodal first failure in the patients treated prone, 1.4% in the supine group, and none, I'm sorry, that is not nodal first failure, that's any nodal failure, none in the breast and node groups. There have been no nodal first failures in this population at all. So if we look at the overall outcome, and I think this is the point, because when people object to Z11, they are focused on, well, what about the risk of nodal recurrence? And if you look at these curves and you see that big black line, that black line is distant recurrence, which is by far the most common event 
in this population of node-positive breast cancer patients. Combined nodal and distant recurrence is shown in the yellow line, breast and nodal recurrence in the blue line, and you can see that the five-year cumulative nodal recurrence rate in the 484 patients who got the radiation was 1%, a rare event. So basically, our findings recapitulate those of Z11. So I think what we can say is that with a follow-up of 10 years, axillary dissection does not improve rates of local regional recurrence, disease-free or overall survival, compared to sentinel node biopsy alone in patients with metastases in one or two sentinel nodes. The majority of clinically node-negative patients having breast conservation can avoid axillary dissection, regardless of their age, ERPR, or HER2 status, and when you do that, it is not necessary to radiate the node fields in everybody because nodal recurrence is uncommon. So how do surgeons feel about this? So now we're back to our population-based samples of surgeons, and these surgeons we surveyed, or we surveyed these surgeons about the axillary question in 2014-15, so relatively recently. And we said, if you have a 48-year-old with a one-and-a-half-centimeter grade 3 hormone receptor-positive cancer who is found to have a macrometastasis in one sentinel node or in two sentinel nodes, would you recommend an axillary dissection? And we offered the choices definitely no, probably no, probably yes, definitely yes. Notice that for one macrometastasis, 49% would definitely or probably do an axillary dissection. And when it went up to two, that number went up to 63%. And we then decided to look at the relationship between the propensity to do axillary dissection and what kind of margins you like. Because we were curious to know whether or not this was an intellectual disagreement with Z11. We don't like your statistics. We think the trial was underpowered, blah, blah, blah. Or we just don't like change. So what's illustrated on this graph is we asked a total of like seven different scenarios about would you do an axillary dissection if, and we created a propensity scale. So on the side of the screen closest to me, are surgeons who had a low propensity for axillary dissection, intermediate and high propensity for axillary dissection, and now we're looking at their margin preference. So notice that if you had a low propensity for axillary dissection, 85% of those surgeons accepted no ink on tumor as an adequate margin, but if you had a high propensity for axillary dissection, that number went down to 46%. So there was a clear relationship. And when we did a multivariable analysis looking at a number of factors, what we found was these were not old men surgeons. There was no relationship between gender and age. They weren't even old women surgeons. Um, those things were not predictors of the propensity to do axillary dissection. What were predictors were, once again, higher breast cancer volume treated, lower likelihood to do axillary dissection. Talk about your cases in tumor board, even if 
that number was as small as 1% to 9% of your cases discussed in a multidisciplinary tumor board. That significantly lowered your likelihood of dissection compared to, patient, to surgeons who talked about none of their cases and the relationship with margin status that I showed you graphically on the other slide. So this association between the performance of dissection and the preference for wider margins suggests that there is an overall knowledge or conceptual issue at work here regarding how one views the biology of breast cancer and that this is more common in lower volume surgeons and those who don't discuss cases in tumor board, which suggests that that's where educational efforts need to be targeted. Overall, I would consider this a bad sign because if anything, decision-making in breast cancer is becoming progressively more complicated, which means that this gap is going to widen. And I'd like to just conclude by talking about where I think the future is going and some of these decisions. So what I've been talking to you about in local regional therapy of doing less is predicated upon the idea that that tumor is going to respond to systemic therapy, which is something you don't know when you do surgery up front. So neoadjuvant therapy, classically neoadjuvant chemotherapy in this country, we know increases rates of breast conservation. It decreases the likelihood of axillary nodal metastases. And conversely, it may identify the highest risk tumors who require more aggressive local therapy. And we also know that with modern systemic therapy in the groups who get neoadjuvant therapy, which are classically triple negative and HER2 overexpressing cancers, that in patients with biopsy-proven positive nodes, you see nodal pathologic complete response rates that are about 50%, which is pretty remarkable. So one question we asked, which was the question of what's most important, biology or tumor burden, was we looked at patients who had pre-neoadjuvant contraindications to sentinel node biopsy, which were patients who either had T4 cancer or N2 or N3 disease, and patients who were candidates, who were patients who had N1 disease, and we looked at whether or not the rates of nodal PCR differed between those two groups, and they did not. They were statistically the same, 45 and 50 percent, telling you that biology, not tumor burden, predicts PCR, which is not really a surprise. So then we asked the question, okay, if you have somebody who has biopsy-proven positive nodes, how likely are you to avoid axillary dissection by giving the patient preoperative chemotherapy? Because patients tend to think of surgery as the first step in their treatment, and so if you're talking to somebody and you say, I recommend you do this, how likely is it that you're both going to have a nodal pathologic complete response and retrieve three or more sentinel nodes, which is what you need based on prospective multi-institutional trials to get your false negative rate of sentinel node biopsy down less than 10%. So we did that study in this group of 128 consecutive patients. And what we found was that we were able to avoid axillary dissection in about half of these patients. That was the combined nodal PCR, three or more sentinel nodes. 
So that then raises the very interesting question of what is the optimal strategy to avoid axillary dissection when faced with a patient in your office? If the patient is clinically node positive, meaning they have palpable axillary nodal disease, which is biopsy proven to contain cancer, then neoadjuvant therapy is the only option because none of the clinical trials, Amaros or ACASOG Z11, apply to those patients. But in the patient who is clinically node negative, do you operate on them first or do you give them preoperative chemotherapy if they meet other criteria for preoperative chemotherapy? So we looked at that question in a population of close to 2,000 women. And what we found was if you look at women with ER-positive cancers, all of whom had positive sentinel nodes, and compared neoadjuvant therapy first versus upfront surgery, that by giving neoadjuvant therapy first, you tripled the likelihood of axillary dissection. This was not a good strategy. In contrast, if you have somebody with a HER2-positive cancer or a triple-negative cancer who opts to be treated by mastectomy, and in our practice, if you're having a mastectomy, if you have any cancer in your sentinel nodes, you get an axillary dissection. Here, notice that even after adjusting for age and clinical T and lymphovascular invasion, by giving neoadjuvant chemotherapy, you reduce the likelihood of needing an axillary dissection by 75 to 80% in these patients because their nodal PCR rate is so high. So I think what I take away from this is that the rules that we have been using for surgery and radiotherapy, which were developed in the mid-1970s to early 1980s, have served us well over time, and they improved patient outcomes compared to what we did before that. But very little of what we believe about breast cancer biology today was in place 30 years ago, and so that means we need to make some new rules. And I think a cornerstone of this is that as therapeutic advances in one discipline occur, we need to evaluate the ongoing necessity for all of our treatment approaches in order to really have integrated multidisciplinary care rather than serial episodes of care delivered by doctors of different specialties. And when it comes to selecting the approach that minimizes surgical morbidity today, we need to think about ERPR and HER2 status, we need to think about clinical nodal status, and we need to think about what breast operation we're doing to select what is the appropriate approach to the axilla. So I think we have gone from this era, this classic anatomically-based Rembrandt painting, to this era when we start to think about treating breast cancer today. Thank you. Um, a good platform to maybe get some questions from the audience. I have a question. Um, I, I don't treat breast cancer, but I am interested in guidelines and thinking about clinical practice guidelines. And I wonder, 
just publishing a guideline, as you suggested, is enough to really consider it dissemination. Was practice just evolving, or was it really just putting it out there and counting on people to read and follow the guidelines that, that made those changes occur? Well, I, I mean, I think that it is possible that practice was magically evolving precisely at the time that we put out the guideline only in invasive cancer and not in DCIS. But I don't think that's true. I think that we spent a lot of time publicizing this guideline at meetings, um, and not just meetings of subspecialists, and across all three disciplines of breast cancer care so that we were not getting pushbacks, for example, from radiation oncology because our guideline panel included representatives of radiation oncology and medical oncology. I was a little bit surprised that it worked so well. And I think one of the issues about guidelines, and I will say as a disclosure here that I was a member of that IOM panel who wrote guidelines we can trust, which you know sought to create the perfect guideline. And in general, if you can create the perfect guideline, there's no practice controversy because the evidence is perfectly clear and you don't need the guideline. Where there's practice controversy is where the evidence is imperfect, as it was in the area of margins, because all the studies were retrospective. But our guideline was very practically clinically focused on what about this clinical scenario, what about that clinical scenario. And I think timing was right in the sense that Surgeons were just sick of doing re-excisions, which if you think back to the original six prospective randomized trials that established breast-conserving surgery, only one of those trials defined a microscopic margin width, and that microscopic margin width was no ink on tumor. Over time, as we, as always, sought to be perfect and eliminate local recurrence, which is, of course, biologically impossible, because if margins was the answer to eliminating local recurrence, there would be no local recurrence after mastectomy. And there is plenty of it. So over time, there was what I would call margin creep. And bigger kept getting better. Um, so I think we hit the right time, and we hit the right note, even though the evidence we used for our guideline was far from perfect evidence. But there's never going to be that evidence. Nobody's funding the trial to compare one millimeter to two millimeters to no ink on tumor. And even if they were, differences in processing of those specimens in the lab would make the results a giant mishmash. So we were, we were one of the um, growing institutions for the Z10, Z11. So I think you're preaching to the choir a little bit about the, um, you know, for the, the uh, axillary dissection issue. But I was wondering what's happening uh, at Sloan these days with regard to uh, patients who've had mastectomies and are kind of going to get radiation therapy anyway um, with regard to their axilla and whether to go back to an axillary dissection for patients that might have positive notes. How are you, how are you integrating that? So I think that if you know, based on the primary characteristics of the patient and the tumor, for example, you have a 38-year-old with a 4.5-centimeter clinical cancer, if you know that the finding of one positive sentinel node is sufficient for post-mastectomy radiotherapy, 
then I think the data from Amaros would support the fact that you don't need to dissect that axilla, that you'll get less lymphedema by radiating the nodal fields. Having said that, there were virtually no patients in Amaros with more than one positive sentinel node. So as you move into two positive nodes, three positive nodes, you move into the data-free zone about how much disease burden is too much disease burden to control with radiation and systemic therapy. We, at least we as a surgical group, as distinguished from our radiation oncologists, have been relatively resistant to the concept that all patients with one sentinel node that contains tumor require PMRT. And for that reason, finding the total number of positive nodes has been important to us historically in decision-making because we only radiated about 30% of patients with one to three positive nodes historically. That is shifting as the level of enthusiasm for adopting comprehensive nodal radiation for almost everyone has increased based on the overview and based on the PM or the uh, breast conserving surgery comprehensive node field trials, MA12 uh, in the EURTC study. So I think that very much depends on what your local standard of practice is. Um, the number of those patients is pretty small, so I think we don't know much about their local control rates, but there's no reason to speculate that they would be different. I, I think the real question is, in a patient who's had a breast reconstruction, where you're not sure if you're going to radiate, what's more morbid, dissecting the axilla or radiating their reconstruction? Because there's a lot of morbidity associated with radiating reconstruction. If you're committed to doing it anyway, then I agree with your point. I was really interested in your observation that uh, old male surgeons were the answer here. <laughs> The question comes, you, did you ever consider stratifying your data on, on, on surgeons, uh, looking at those that are, let's say, working at uh, medical schools, tertiary medical care versus private? Because if there isn't an age factor, the question really is, where is this rigidity coming from? Yeah. Um, we have looked at that. Um, <laughs> So we have looked at whether you are in a pure community practice, a practice associated with residents, or a university-based practice. And the difference isn't there. I think that's confounded by volume to a large extent, but we don't see a difference across that. The difference is really across volume. And what I speculate is, you know, I do nothing but breast cancer. And it changes so fast that I have a hard time keeping up to date with what I really think is the right thing to do. If you are the average general surgeon in America who treats 12 to 16 breast cancers a year and everything else in between, it's not entirely surprising to me that you may be a very late adopter of some of these changes. And although I don't really like to think of surgery this way, there is an obvious financial disincentive for doing less and in order to make that up for billing less on a given case, you have to do more cases. And if that volume isn't there, what's the incentive for you to do that? So I, I think it's a multifactorial thing. 
Dr. Morrow, thank you so much. Thank you.